That's very good. Um, clearly, we take this season very seriously as a church, and that's uh, something to be admired and respected. Um, Lent traditionally is given as a season to prepare ourselves for this story that we're looking at this week and next week of the passion and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is the central story of the whole of Scripture. It's not, uh, it's not just something that happened to Jesus. This is the crucial part. And each of the Gospels spends a ridiculous amount of time telling this part of Jesus' life. So, for example, John's Gospel does chapters 1 to 11, which cover the first you know, 30 years of Jesus' life, mainly the uh, three years of his ministry. Um, so that's kind of half the book. And then the second half of the book, chapters 12 to 21, look entirely at this, uh, a few weeks at the end of Jesus' life. Um, all his coming into Jerusalem, his journey, well, first of all, his journey towards Jerusalem, then his coming into Jerusalem, his encounters at the temple, um, the anointing at Bethany, you know, where he has his feet anointed. Um, and then the Passover meal is told in great detail, or the foot washing um, in John's gospel. Um, and then Jesus' prayer and his time in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then his betrayal and his trial and his beating. The story slows down and gives a ridiculous amount of time to these things. His, you know, um, John even describes, I think it's like seven trials or something like this, like crazy. Um, the amount of detail that the stories go into to um, the, the story of the, the crowd mocking Jesus, of choosing Barabbas uh, to be rescued to them, um, the walk of the cross, the actual description of the journey between Jesus' trial and he's given his cross to carry and then Simon of Cyrene is given it to carry for a bit. The, the detail is, is, is incredible um, and then the crucifixion and what's going on there and who's saying what and who's looking and then the burial. These things are given so much time in the Gospels and a part of the reason for that besides the fact that it's, the, <laughs> it's like the most important events in human history is um, to invite us to really give them time as well, is to invite us to look at these stories slowly. Um, we're going to do the opposite of that this morning because we haven't got long, but, <laughs> but the, basically my invitation this morning is let's gaze again at these stories in a slow way. Let's give them time this week. If you've got some time um, this week, just spend some time reading and seeing again. We just sung a song, see him there, see him um, on the cross, see him in his glory, see him there. Um, and that's really um, what I think we should be um, all about this week. There's opportunities to do that, isn't there, this week? We've already talked about Friday from 11 till 1. It's a bank holiday. Yay, come and spend it with Forest Hill. Um, but come and spend it here for good, um, a couple of hours, just meditating on the meaning of the cross. And then we'll be back here celebrating as well um, next Sunday. Or there's the, um, the youth are going to the big um, passion show in Trafalgar Square. It's a really useful retelling of the story to kind of, I mean, some of the people do look a bit ridiculous dressed up as like Roman centurions. But um, it's really cool and it's really well told and it's worthwhile um, giving the story some space in your week. Is that okay? I've said that. Slow down. Give the story space. Um, the followers of Jesus became very quickly obsessed, next one, um, with the cross. They weren't expecting it, were they? When Jesus started talking about the fact that he must go and suffer and die, did all his disciples get it straight away? 
No, they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. The idea of a suffering Messiah was not on the cards for them. It was not what they were hoping for. It was not what they were expecting. And even after Jesus died, it didn't make sense to them straight away. It barely made sense to them after he was raised from the dead. And he had to talk it through with them very clearly afterwards. Why? But what we get in the New Testament is this incredible picture of over time, the followers of Jesus spend more and more time thinking about the cross, thinking about what it meant, why it had to happen, why this is such a key part of human history, why the Messiah had to come and suffer and die. Um, And as they do that, what you get is all the way through the New Testament, tons and tons and tons of rich imagery about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as they try and come to terms with what does this story mean for my life? Um, uh, To plan this, I did a little exercise this week um, which took a bit too long, um, which was to look through the whole Old Testament and write down every mention of the cross and how it's described, how the death of Jesus is told in the New Testament. And uh, it took like a lot of space on a huge piece of flip chart paper. Uh, as there's just peppered with references. Um, and the, what came to mind is like, imagine if you were to, um, what, the, even the references that I got aren't the whole thing. Every verse in the New Testament is infused with the theology of the cross. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Everything that is talked about in the New Testament, I would say probably in the Old as well, it's just better hidden some of the time, um, is infused the theology of the cross because it's so important. It would be like me giving you a pack of um, frosted cornflakes and saying, can you go through this pack and look for the sugar? And it's just so infused everywhere that you can't look at any part of a cornflake without finding sugar because it's not just one of the ingredients. It's all the way through. Does that make sense? And that's how the cross is um, in the New Testament. And so what we get is as the writers of the New Testament are thinking about the cross and thinking about what it means, they find these different metaphors and ways of expressing something of the enormous meaning of the cross. Now, we're going to rattle through them in about three minutes. Is that okay? Um, Because this is not my main point, but I just would feel guilty if I didn't do this. Um, So, um, the cross. Um, One of the metaphors that the writers of the New Testament use to describe the cross is that the cross is like the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Romans 3, Paul says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. So when Jesus died, it was more than just a guy dying. What this death did was like in the sacrificial system when you would offer up a pure, spotless animal and in some weird way, the animal's death makes you okay. Like it's a weird thing. No one really understands. Um, but this, this weird exchange where the the, 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 the death that my sins mean and deserve is carried by something else. And Paul says that is the case with this death of Jesus. Um, in 1 Peter, Peter describes it like this. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And so what they were doing is they were looking at the sacrificial system and saying, wow, my gosh, this has been transformed by the cross. We don't need to try hard to get God's approval anymore because he has spoken his amazing yes to us. Um, Like it says in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, So, uh, and, and Christ takes the separation that our sins deserve with God 
on him on the cross. And so we get this amazing phrase that Jesus says from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he's describing the distance between himself and the Father that is the distance that we deserve. That's one of the metaphors that the New Testament uses, and it's all over the place uh, through the New Testament, but it's not the only one. Um, The next one um, is uh, the metaphor of rescue. What time of year did Jesus die? The Passover, and the followers of Jesus weren't um, ignorant to that. They, they understood that, and they understood the significance of the Passover in the whole story of the Jewish people so far, that God is a God who rescues from slavery. And so when Jesus um, meets his disciples um, on the night before he was betrayed, what does he say? He takes the meal. Which meal? The Passover meal, the meal of communion, isn't, didn't, Jesus didn't start it. He was taking the Passover meal and saying, this was about that story, but now it's about this story. This is always actually being pointing to me. And this story is, is about my body. It's not about a lamb that you kill and put the blood on your door. It's about the lamb of God, me, who is going to be slain and the blood of me, <laughs> the blood of me. I don't think he says it like that. Um, but it becomes um, our Passover lamb, Paul says. He's like, Jesus is like our Passover lamb because he cares about rescue. He cares about freeing us from slavery. And so Jesus says to his disciples, this is my body. This is my blood shed for you. Um, but then the, the story is also about um, an example of God understanding and being in our human suffering. Very good. Yes, that's the spirit. Um, Really good. Um, The question, does God understand human suffering? And as the followers of Jesus thought about the cross, they realized it's the ultimate picture of the fact that we have a God who isn't distant from us, who doesn't not understand the trials and aches and pains and disasters of human life. So Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about the God of all comfort, And he says, just as the suffering of Christ flows over into our lives, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. Time and time again, the Bible speaks to the human suffering and says what you're doing is you're you're not doing it alone. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Christ understands, or like Hebrews says, like we need a Messiah who understands the trials of human life. And what the cross says is that God knows When you're going through the worst possible situation in your life, God knows what that feels like. When you feel like no one's with you, God knows what that feels like. When you feel like death is at your door, God knows what that feels like. When you feel so broken and so alone, God knows what that feels like. In fact, he suffered the most extreme punishment, the most extreme torture, and the most extreme circumstances um, that that could have happened. and he, uh, one, of the, one of his last words on the cross was just, is so simple but so poignant as well for this issue. Jesus hanging on the cross said, I thirst. And that's such a powerful statement of what God is like. <laughs> that God isn't this ambivalent guy in the sky who's fundamentally um, away from our suffering. He understands. He understands thirst. He understands suffering. 
But then also um, the cross became to, to God's people an example of what real, a life fully devoted to God can look like. Um, so uh, to, to how much should we give ourselves to God? And, and the writers of the New Testament were like, well, if we look at Jesus and if we look at the cross, that kind of answers that question. Because a life fully devoted to God could not be more fully expressed than laying down your life, than taking up a cross and being persecuted and not shying back from it. Like Jesus in the garden prayed, my, uh, like, Lord, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. Jesus' cross is the ultimate expression of human obedience to God. And so in Philippians 2, Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be clung onto, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant and being found in human likeness. He became obedient even to death, even death on a cross, obedient to death. And so Jesus on the cross says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus becomes the ultimate example of what giving yourself fully into the hands of God can look like. And and Christians through the years have written um, a lot on that. And there's another model of the cross that's really um, kind of come back into the, into the church's consciousness in the last year after being kind of stomped on for thousands of years. Um, and that is that the cross is, a, is in a profound sense a victory over the forces of Satan and evil and death in the world. It looks like it's a triumph of Satan and evil and death over Jesus, but it's not. It's the triumph of self-sacrificial love over the powers of state and violence and hatred and Satan and death and sin. The cross is a picture of when the, full, the fullest powers of human evil muster together and gather against what God is doing, against love, against um, Jesus' um, goodness and against his love. Um, the most they can do is kill him. And then he just goes and completely undermines them all by being raised to life and declaring, actually, this is not a victory for you. It's a victory for love. It's a victory for the true power of God that's going to change the world forever. Amen? Is that good? So in Hebrews 2, it says, he, he, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't that cool? God sets us free um, in Christ. Or in, in Colossians, um, it says this, uh, in the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and principalities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And in John's gospel, Jesus is looking towards the cross and he doesn't say, now I'm going to die, but it's okay because um, I'll forgive you. Um, He says, now is the time for the judgment of this world. And now will the prince of this world be driven out and I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all men to myself. The cross is a major victory over all the evil of the world. Tom Wright talks about the evil of the world being kind of lured, it's like a trap in some way, um, onto Jesus, but then defeated. And so Jesus on the cross can say, it is finished. The work that God gave him to do in defeating um, all that holds us down is finished. Or the picture of the picture of the triumphant Christ in Revelation. I love talking about this passage. Um, when when John is uh, hears the 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 Lion of God roaring, 
And he turns around and has a look at where the roar came from. And on the throne of God is what? The lamb looking like it was slain. The cross is the victory. The self-giving love of Jesus is the victory. Now, these are all great, right? And they're all true. But the problem is, the way we handle them has sometimes been a bit stupid. So generally what happens is in the church, there'll be people who identify most with one of these models or who who think that one of them comes up in more verses or whatever. Um, And then the church has a big fight about it. And it's like, well, okay, you can understand the, the triumph one, but make sure that the main way you understand the cross is Jesus as a sacrifice for sins to take away your guilt because otherwise God would be angry at you. Does that make sense? And so we kind of turn the cross into an intellectual kind of who's right game. Like, you know, and, and over time, kind of different ones of these have come in and out of fashion in the church, different ones of these models. But guys, that's not why they're in the New Testament. That's not what we're being asked to do in the New Testament. Rather, the question isn't like an intellectual one, which model is it? Rather, what happens is these come out when the earliest followers of Jesus, when the, when the people who knew him best, looked at the cross and they looked at life and they asked the question, what does the cross do to this part of my life? And that means there's not one with more value than the other. Does that make sense? That means that they all... <laughs> it, If you look at your religion and you look at the sacrificial system of the day and you say, what does looking at this through the lens of the cross do? I just put the lens over my nose. Um, What does looking at this through the lens of the cross do? Well, the cross says that at our moment of greatest evil, uh, uh, the, the sum of human evil, at that moment, God spoke his greatest love to us. And gave his son for us. So do I think I probably need to sacrifice another sheep to earn his approval? Probably not. Do you see? Do you see what the cross does to that if you look at it that way? Or like, um, uh, let's say if we're thinking about you're impacted by a cause and you feel like, oh my gosh, there's those people suffering over there and I need to do something to help. Uh, And we think, oh, how how much should I give? How much should I give? Well, what happens if you look at it through the lens of the cross and you see that, oh my gosh, in my, in my point of need, God didn't just give a bit. He gave everything. He gave himself. And so how do I respond to that giving? Do you see? We look at it through the lens of the cross. Or when someone cuts you up on the road or honks at you when they think you should have come out sooner. I hate that. I just want to, you know, the challenge is, to absorb the hatred and the indignation of the world around us and to rise above it and say, Father, forgive them. They clearly don't know what they're doing. Oh, that's good. I got a little murmur. Um, or, um, or when we're suffering, when we're in pain, and I know, like, I just looking around the room, I know some situations of real genuine pain, real genuine hurt, um, currently or recently in this room. And what does the lens of the cross say? We talked about this already. It says he knows. 
It says he knows. It says he understands. Um, and and when John wrote to the church um, in, in the book of Revelation, he was writing a letter to the church that was just so, so struggling. Um, some of the parts of the church were struggling because they were under constant oppression and everyone hated them and their numbers were shrinking and they just thought, is there a future for the church? And some parts of the church were struggling because life was a bit easy and it's really easy to take your eye off the ball when life is easy. And so they were struggling with um, just kind of blending in to the way that things were going. Um, But to both of those, John writes, and he sees this picture of Jesus saying, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. I've won, I've been through it, and I've triumphed over it. There's life on the other side of your suffering. That's what the cross says to our suffering. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? That you can actually look through any part of life and look at it through the lens of the cross and it gets transformed because the suffering and death of Jesus becomes the defining story for all of human history. The cross shapes our whole life. It's not just a formula to learn. It's something to be lived. And for too long, the church has held the cross as an intellectual thing. It's a bit like a password that if I learn it, I get to go to heaven. E equals MC squared, right? How many of you know that E equals MC squared? And by and large, we can kind of, a lot of us can complete that formula. Keep your hand up if you can understand, if you can tell me exactly what it means and how it relates to Einstein's special theory of relativity. (laughs) I don't doubt that there'll be a couple of people here. But what I'm saying is that we can treat the cross a little bit like that. The cross, Jesus saves me from my sins. But do we actually understand? Do we get it? Does that make sense? Do we get how it transforms our existence? How it transforms our life? How it is meant to kind of impact and kind of come into our lives? That's what I think God is asking us to do. One of the guys that I think I've quoted in every one of these examples is a guy called Paul. Um, And I did that kind of on purpose because I wanted to show that this isn't meant to be a competition. One guy in the New Testament had all of these opinions um, about the death of Jesus, so it's okay. Um, But um, he also said something just so great that's just been on my mind. As I I read it in my little kind of journey through the New Testament, um, this week it just lodged itself in my mind, and I haven't been able to shake it out, and so I think we should talk about it a bit and then land there. Um, He says this in Galatians 6, and Galatians is all about um, people experiencing the freedom of what the cross and the resurrection of Jesus has done in our lives. It's all about living it, living in the reality. Um, And he says this at the end, may I never boast, in fact, I think I've got the quote, Um, Oh, yeah, great. Uh, May I never boast except in the cross of Christ, through which... Now, now he could stop there, right? May I never boast except in the cross of Christ. The cross is great, and nothing else in my life is going to take away from its significance in my life. Fine, he could have stopped there. But then he says this, and it's just so beautiful and so deep that I think we just need to hang on it. Through which... So, so more people died on the cross than just Jesus, according to this next bit. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Isn't that amazing? That Paul can look at this and say, my whole life 
is shaped around this reality through which the world has been crucified to me. Well, what might Paul mean? I'm not going to say this is what Paul means because I think I didn't get to the bottom of this imagery um, this week. But here's what I thought, um, something of how the world has been crucified to him. I think he's saying the whole way I understood worth, the whole way I understood value, the whole way I understood who's in and who's out in terms of religion, what's important, the whole way I understood what is God-like, the whole way I understood success and status and everything like that died and got changed when Jesus died. Does that make sense? The whole way I assess value and I assess purpose. He says it like this in Philippians, um, because Paul grew up in a really clear set of values. He had a lovely worldview that was very clean, neat, and tidy, and into which things easily fitted or didn't fit. And the cross ruined everything for him. Um, When he was growing up, he grew up as a Pharisee, as a kind of religious elite um, in Jerusalem. He was a Jew. He was born in the right family. He kept all the commandments. He lived his whole life rigorously trying to obey the law of God and trying to live his way. And anyone who fell outside of it, he would rigorously and righteously pursue that downfall. Um, And Paul just had these really clear ideas. But then it says in Philippians, he says, Everything that I once valued, I now consider rubbish for the sake of Christ, compared to knowing Christ. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the less popular second half, (laughs) the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He's saying the whole way I understood the world died. Has the cross done that to us? Often the cross doesn't do that to people. Sometimes the cross just means that I can keep going because the cross says I'm fine. Or the cross says, oh, it doesn't matter because, you know, your sins are forgiven, so who cares? Or the cross says, does that make sense? The cross is, is it asking to come and redefine the way that we see everything. But then he says this, not just, not just the world has been crucified to me, but I have been crucified to the world. What does that mean? I think in Paul's life, he wasn't being too imagey here. Uh, I said that badly, but I think he was saying, when I met Jesus, my life didn't get easier. In fact, my life began to look more and more and more and more like the cross of Jesus. And that's where this message gets really difficult, isn't it? That's the bit of the cross that I don't much want. The world being crucified to me, that's a challenge enough in itself. But I to the world? (laughs) You know, it's like the hazard of choosing to follow a guy who got rejected and killed. (laughs) It's like if you follow a leader who gets rejected and killed, there's a good chance that that might happen. And for Paul, this was a real reality in his life. And it's the challenge of Jesus, isn't it? Take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? What does it mean to embrace the cost of the crucifixion? Or as Hebrews said, Jesus was taken outside the camp and killed outside the camp. And so the challenge comes to those of us who believe in him, not to live our lives inside the comfort, but to journey outside and bear the shame of Jesus outside the camp. Now, 
What that doesn't mean is that we're all going to leave here and get killed today or that that's the aim, okay? So please don't try and go and martyr yourself. It's not cool. Um, there's, there's enough of that going on around the world without um, Christians uh, kind of in self-flagellation or whatever. That's not, um, that's not the point. But, but it's an invitation of the cross towards mirroring the self-giving, self-sacrificial love of Jesus. And, and, and inviting the cross to do whatever it wants to do in our lives. It's about receiving grace and then being a channel of grace. It's about receiving the sacrifice of God and then joining in with that sacrifice of God as the death of Jesus wants to save the whole world through us. Um, we sung um, a song earlier, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and I think we're going to come back to that um, in a moment. Is that all right? Yeah, good. Um, and... Oh my gosh, what, when the, <laughs> we sung some incredible lyrics this morning, didn't we? Um, just so rich. But when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, the, the writer's saying, when I look at it, when I let it do its work in me, when I survey it, um, um, and I've forgotten the next lyric now, um, my richest gain I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The cross changes everything in our lives. It's not something to know. It's something to live. It's something to be received. Is that okay? Um, Luke's adding a little verse to it now, um, which really he should have done earlier, um, but was too lazy. Uh, no, kidding. Yeah, classic Luke. Um, but the verse that we're adding is is one that mirrors this verse that Paul says um, about the I'm dead to all the world, and all the world is dead to me. The cross changes everything. So this Easter, that's my invitation. Survey, look, spend some time in the Gospels, and let the story shape you, and, and ask through the lens of what's actually going on in your life, what does the cross want to say to me? How is it inviting me to come and die? How is it inviting me to come and find life? Uh, like that, that, that last chorus that we sung, so good. So bids me, the cross bids me, asks me to come and die. And then here's the ticket. Find that I might truly live. Does that make sense? This isn't us looking to live a worse, more boring, worse, terrible life. The secret of the cross and the majesty of the cross is that in journeying through it, that's the way to fullness of life. Jesus said, if you lay down your life, that's how you find it. And he meant it. He wasn't playing games with us. He meant it. This is a good journey. It's a hard journey. Um, Right, I could keep going, but I'm going to stop.